0: This is Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and I want to thank you for listening and taking the time to hear the message and the good news of Jesus Christ that we have to offer here at Union. Our current sermon series is called Courageous, because faith in Jesus is not simply about what we believe, but about putting those beliefs into action. And that takes courage. Here's this week's message.
1: Today's first scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter four, verses four through nine. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, beloved, whatever is true May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word.
0: Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray together. Holy and wondrous God, I pray that you would come into our midst now, that you would speak, for your people stand ready to hear and to listen. pray that you would give me clarity of speech and courage to preach your word and not just my words. I pray that you would give us the courage to hear you and to hear what you are saying to your church here today. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, that portion of the letter that Legis read for us comes to us from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, this letter was written after a member of the church in Philippi, which is a city in Macedonia, had come to visit Paul. While he was in prison, he, he was we're not exactly sure which time this was that Paul was in prison, but we know that he was in prison, and the members of the church at Philippi were worried about him. And so they sent a guy named Epaphroditus to go to where Paul was to bring the best wishes of the church to check on, paul and to make sure that he was doing okay and so paul uh sent epaphroditus back to the church with this letter and and the amazing thing about this is that again the church sent someone to check on him because they were worried about him they were worried about his well-being they you know the thing is they'd seen paul in a tight spot before when paul was in philippi the first time he had been in jail He had been in jail until a miraculous earthquake came and knocked the walls of the jail down, and he had been able to escape. So the people in this church knew that amazing things could happen for Paul, yet nevertheless, they were worried enough that they sent someone to see him. This is a letter that is a response to a worried church. And Paul's response not just in the final section that we read, but throughout the letter, is the same. Paul's response is, rejoice. Rejoice. Be joyful. Paul says that that these difficult circumstances that he finds himself in have actually been a boon to his ministry. He says that even though I have been incarcerated, here I am able to spread the gospel just the same. He says that this has been a humbling experience. Philippians is the letter where Paul talks about having the same mind in you that is in Christ Jesus, a mind that seeks to humble oneself, to become like a servant, even to the point of death. Because in doing so, Jesus was exalted and raised up above all other names so that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall proclaim that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul has to say to this worried church. He says, rejoice, and then he says it again and again and again. Rejoice. He tells them in in what Lee read that they need to keep in mind, keep thinking on whatever is good and excellent and honorable and pleasing. He says to them, keep on keeping on with the things that I taught you to do. Just keep on going and the peace of God and the God of peace will be near to you. It's a counterintuitive response to a hurting world and to a worried church, I think. The Philippians were justified, I think, in worrying about Paul. You know, he'd been in a lot of tight scrapes. But, but their concern about him was really a concern about themselves. If it could happen to Paul, it, it could happen to their church, too. It was, it was a tumultuous time. It was a difficult time to be a Christian. And so Paul's words may seem a bit strange. It reminds me of a passage in the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 6, he says, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I could imagine Jeremiah saying to Paul, you're dealing falsely when you say, rejoice, rejoice, when there is no joy. There is only worry and concern in the world. Is Paul guilty of dealing falsely with the church here? I think that 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 question hits home for us now today because this letter to a worried church still carries through even today into our time. These are troubling times to be the church, a time of war, a time of economic hardships, a time where the church itself is hurting. There don't seem to be any answers on the horizon, but Paul gives us this answer this reassurance, this encouraging word. He's not blind to the challenges. He sees them very clearly. But what he also sees clearly is the power of Christ at work, even in those difficult circumstances. And he says that, that a time like this requires a reorientation, a, a grounding again in the basic vision and purpose For Paul, that's reminding the church to be humble, to be obedient, to hold fast to whatever is good and just and excellent. And so here today, I think we are doing well in these troubled times as a worried church to return to uh, what I like to think of as the original vision statement of the Christian church. And it comes to us in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. I heard a preacher say that he likes to preach on this passage at least once a year, just to remind the church of its why, of what it's really about. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 16, it starts like this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And it goes on after that, but I'm going to stop there for now. Therefore, go. It's always worth noting when we hear this passage that from the very beginning, there was not unanimity of belief even among those who knew Jesus best, about what to think about this Jesus character. This passage comes after Jesus has been raised. It comes on after Easter morning. It comes after an angel rolled aside the stone of the tomb and found it empty. And now there Jesus is, standing in front of these disciples, having died and been raised. And you know, some people were amazed and believed instantly that he had been resurrected from the dead, but it says some doubted. Some didn't understand or comprehend what exactly they were seeing. Yet, all of them worshipped. All of them worshipped. Even the doubters worshipped. And we can start there. Because in troubled times, it's important to remember that worship is what we do in response to the reality of God's power in the world. Jesus said, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. It's often translated as authority. The word power here is not just the power to do things. When Jesus says authority, he means the power to give power to others, the authority to direct others along a journey, along a path, along a way that will lead to the fruition of God's will. Jesus has all of that power in heaven and on earth. The same power that created the heavens and the earth is in him. And what does he do with it? He gives it to these people. Those who understood, those who believed, and the doubters. That's that's an amazing thing, I think. An amazing thing that the God of the universe would enlist, even imperfect and doubting people, in the great work of God's sovereign majesty. We can start there. We can start with the worship that is the response to that power, but we can't stay there because Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. Therefore, go. 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 You know, the disciples at this point, they were used to Jesus telling them to do stuff. They were used to him telling them to go places. Jesus had told them to go into the countryside, into the hills and the villages, to heal people in Jesus' name. They'd gone out two by two, and they had healed people in Jesus' name. Jesus had told the disciples at one point to get in a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee while he went to pray uh, for a little while. They had encountered a storm on the sea, but they had gone nevertheless Jesus had told them uh, to go all sorts of places, but even after his resurrection, it wasn't Jesus, but an angel who told the women at the tomb to go, to tell the disciples to go ahead to Galilee, that he would meet them there. The disciples were used to being told to go, but this time it was a little different. This time it wasn't Jesus directly telling them to go. This time it was Jesus telling them that they needed to go out on their own. And it takes courage to do that. When Jesus had sent them into the countryside, he'd said, take nothing with you. Take nothing with you. Just rely upon the grace of God to provide for you. And I think, given that challenge, most of us would say, I don't know about that. Are you sure I shouldn't at least take an extra pair of shoes? Maybe an extra change of clothes, it's going to get funky out there. But Jesus says, no, you, you need to trust. You need to have some courage in going out. When the disciples were in that boat and the storm kicked up and they thought they were perishing, Jesus had come to them across the water. And that was a miracle enough. But the disciples who saw him first thought that he was some kind of apparition, some kind of ghost. They thought that they were in deep, deep trouble And what did Jesus say to them in that moment? He said, take heart. Which, if you were paying attention last week, you know means have courage. Be courageous. And the thing is, he got in the boat with them, and the wind and the waves died down. When Jesus was with them, not only at his words, but his presence gave them the courage to continue that journey. And on Easter morning... When the angel was there at the tomb, the guards who were there had literally keeled over from fright. But the women who came to the tomb obviously had a bit more, a bit stronger stuff in them than those guards had because they had enough courage to hear what the angel had to say, to hear the good news of Jesus. It takes courage to hear the gospel that death is not the end, that there is hope even in times of war, that the arc of the moral universe is not bent toward tyranny, but toward justice. See, the disciples have had courage all along, but this time it's different, because Jesus is telling them to go in a new way. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. The thing is, up to this point, The disciples had been the disciples who had made them disciples jesus had made them disciples but now he's telling them that it's their job to make disciples he's giving them a new task he's asking them to change how they understand what it means to be a follower of him to take on a new and different sort of responsibility than they may have had Before this, Jesus is asking them to change. And anyone who knows uh, about what it's like to ask a church to change knows that it is a fearful and wonderful thing. Above all else, we know that it requires a certain kind of courage to meet that change, to accept a new task and a new vision. You see, the times are different now. When Jesus was alive and walking around with the disciples, they could rely on him to be there, but now he has been raised and is going to rise again so that only his spirit remains. His spirit sent upon these imperfect disciples to go out into the world and to do the things that Jesus did. How can they possibly have the confidence to to know what they were going to do, how to make those disciples? The thing is, is that is that the disciples are encouraged. They are encouraged because they take up this task of, of baptizing, of teaching what Jesus taught them. They pass along the wisdom of Jesus and they pass along the good news of Jesus. And that starts with those disciples who were there who saw him, but it, it continued even with Paul who never saw Jesus in the flesh but only saw him after the resurrection. Paul never knew Jesus during his earthly ministry. He only knew the resurrected Christ. And yet, because of that power, because of that authority, because the disciples trusted that Jesus had the backing of God, they were willing to at least try. At least try to go about the ministry he called them to. Paul likewise tried to go about the ministry He had been called to, and he did a pretty good job of it. He planted churches all over the place. Churches where people came to hear the good news of hope and liberation, where they got to experience community, where they got to know the tangible benefits of faith, the way it can change your life. And so Jesus gives these disciples a new task. He says they are to go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's that sign of God's grace. It's it's both a, a symbol of individual salvation, but also the building up of a beloved community, building up the body of Christ. Baptism is about incorporating, literally, people into the body of Christ. The disciples are supposed to go and make disciples by baptizing, but then it says... The disciples have to teach them to obey all that I have taught you. And here's the thing. What Jesus taught the disciples is hard. <laughs> Jesus' teachings are hard. Jesus didn't say, here are, here are ten simple things you have to do to win the favor of God. All you've got to do is do these things and you'll be fine. No, Jesus said, you have to love your enemies. You have to trust in the plenty of God and not rely upon your own ingenuity. You have to defy the powers and principalities. That's something Jesus talked about. It's something he lived, defying the religious authorities and the political powers of his time. You have to, in the words of Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, you have to stand on the side of the ones with their backs against the wall. And to stand beside the ones with their backs against the wall means you've got to put your back against the wall. Thurman reminds us that the gospel is really a matter of life and death. That it's really a matter of liberation or oppression. That it's a matter of peace over war. But even as we are hearing these hard words... Thurman also reminds us that the the key to obeying them is to teach them with ultimate and complete sincerity. And to, to make sense of this point, he quotes a letter that Mahatma Gandhi wrote, where Gandhi said, Speak the truth without fear and without exception. See everyone whose work is related to your purpose. You are in God's work, so you need not fear man's scorn. If they listen to your requests and grant them, you will be satisfied. But if you reject them, then you must make their rejection your strength. If they reject them, then you must make their rejection your strength. Thurman explains these words by saying that the teachings of Jesus are indeed powerful. And that's exactly why they're so often met with such ire in the world. He said, his words cannot be lightly disregarded, however devastating they may seem. Thus, teaching and speaking in sincerity the gospel of Jesus Christ is a difficult thing, and obeying those teachings is also equally difficult. In both cases, it requires a certain kind of courage, the courage to proclaim and the courage to not back down from that proclamation no matter whether it is in season or out, there was a time. There was a time when the pronouncements of churches were were received uh, more ardently in our culture than they are now. Uh, just uh, three days ago, uh, there was a joint statement by twenty nine different Christian denominations and agencies, including the United Church of Christ, that was sent to Congress, and it. it Publicly, It said that Congress needs to publicly call for a ceasefire in Israel uh, for de-escalation and restraint on all sides, that the Congress needs to call for prioritizing steps to secure release to hostages and ensure protection for civilians, and to call on all parties to abide by the laws and conventions of war. This missive was sent to Congress, and uh, I wonder what difference do you suppose it makes? What weight it carries. Will it have any practical effect? On the one hand, I am skeptical that it will make a great tangible difference. But on the other hand, where would we be if churches didn't say such things? Where would we be if there was no one willing to proclaim the truth that peace is the way of God in this world and not war? That innocence and the dignity of every life is something to be protected and upheld and affirmed? Where would we be if there were no voice for the poor? Where would we be if there were no voice for the refugee, those fleeing from conflicts and starvation? The mistake we make, I think, is to think that just because the church does not have the same kind of worldly power it once had, that it's on the back foot. That, uh, that the church is the one with its back against the wall. The thing is, is that so long as the church is courageously being the church, we may find ourselves back against the wall, but not without hope. We may find ourselves standing next to the marginalized, but always with a vision for lifting them up and bringing them in, for expanding and incorporating the community of God and the peace of God more and more widely. That's the message that Paul had for the church at Philippi, and I think it is the message he has to any church worried about the church and its future here today. It makes me wonder what it would look like for this church to have the kind of courage to heed those words of Paul, to embrace the teachings of Jesus, to not only hear but obey and to keep those teachings on our hearts, to have the mission of the church in mind and to see the way that mission changes with the times, not to seek relevance necessarily in the culture, but to seek relatedness in the broken places in our world. A courageous church is able to embrace the changing times. It's a change from from being a place to welcome in into a place that's more focused on going out. A change from being hearers to being doers of the word. Uh, A change from being the center of a social life to instead thinking of the church as a spiritual outpost, a kind of field hospital for the soul, for those who are at work in the field, living the gospel, beyond the walls of the church. There's a certain kind of character that this calls for. I think it's it's well captured in a poem by uh, William Wordsworth called uh, The Figure of the Happy Warrior. It says, who is the happy warrior? It is the generous spirit, who when brought among the tasks of real life hath wrought upon the plan that pleased his boyish thought, whose high endeavors are an inward light that makes the path before him always bright, who with natural instinct to discern what knowledge can perform, is diligent to learn, but abides by this resolve and stops not there, but makes his moral being his primary care, who doomed to go in company with pain and fear and bloodshed, miserable train, turns his necessity to glorious gain, who, whether praise of him, must walk the earth forever and to noble deeds give birth, or he must fall to sleep without fame and leave a dead, unprofitable name. Either way, he finds comfort in himself and his cause. And while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior. Friends, when I think of Paul in that jail cell, Receiving Epaphroditus, concern written all over his face. I think of a happy warrior whose higher ideals provide an inward light for him. Who even used the opportunity of imprisonment to continue the work of the gospel, of humble Christian service, and and to remind the church of its high calling even in difficult times, to be courageous in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in both word, but especially in deed. And so today, friends, today we can hear those words and have a courage, have the courage to heed Christ's words to go. Because at the end of the day, the final word is Jesus's word in that final verse of Matthew's gospel, where he says, And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Therefore, shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, let us be happy warriors on behalf of the gospel and peace and justice in our time. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope that this week's message has been a blessing to you. It has been a blessing to share it with you. To learn more about union, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or you can follow us on social media by looking for at Church by the Park. Our theme music is by Anno Domini Meats. Until next time, may God's grace and peace.